good evening. How are you guys doing tonight? Man, 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 oh man, it is good to be with you all tonight. Um, as we enter into the Word of God tonight, man, I'm just so excited for what He has uh, in store for us uh, together this evening. My name's Joel, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, man, we have been walking through this incredible uh, book of God's Word uh, called the Book of Philippians. And uh, man, this is one of those books of the Bible that uh, it's so great for so many reasons. One of the reasons why it's great is that you can read it in a pretty short amount of time. Uh, it's four chapters. You can read it probably in one Netflix episode, um, depending on your reading level and depending on the length of the episode. So um, it's, it's a power-packed four chapters. It's one of those books of the Bible uh, that we like to memorize verses out of because uh, it is an encouraging book of the Bible. It is an inspiring book of the Bible. Uh, it is a book of the Bible that is laden with the beauty of who Jesus is and, and what the gospel is about. Uh, and it is also intensely applicable uh, to our daily lives and to our daily circumstance. One of the reasons for that uh, is that the book of Philippians was written in a cultural and historical context that is actually very, very similar uh, to our own. So uh, the book of Philippians is a letter that Paul, the apostle, uh, who Jesus saved, though he had formerly been an enemy of the gospel, uh, Jesus stopped him in his tracks, showed him who he was, turned him completely around and sent him out to be uh, a former enemy, but then the greatest proponent of the Christian faith uh, in the known world. Uh, Jesus made him uh, the apostle or the sent one to the Gentiles, which is just a, a biblical word for non-Jewish people. Um, and so uh, Paul was tasked with taking the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth, and he did that very effectively. In fact, uh, Paul took uh, three missionary journeys or church planning journeys, uh, and uh, at the end of uh, Paul's uh, missionary kind of career, uh, as he had planted church after church after church, uh, he is planning to go to Spain. That's kind of like his final destination where he wants to end up. But on his way, uh, he stops off in Jerusalem. Um, he had a financial gift from a church to bring to uh, the church in Jerusalem, which was under heavy persecution um, there. And while he was there, uh, some Jewish people got frustrated with his message about Jesus being the Messiah. Uh, so frustrated that they were literally going to tear him limb from limb. And in order to rescue him from that experience, uh, he said, we need to stop this. I'm a Roman citizen. And so he was rescued out of that experience, oddly, by Rome. But the way that he was rescued was that he appealed to Caesar, which meant that as a Roman citizen, he had the right to have his trial uh, heard by Caesar, and Caesar could either exonerate him or put him to death. Now, one hiccup in Paul's plan here is that the Caesar at the time was none other than Nero. And if you don't know who Nero is, he is not a good dude. Now, thankfully, uh, where we kind of date this book of the Bible, uh, this is before Nero has really turned south, mentally speaking. Uh, he's still not a good person by any stretch of the imagination. He's not a good man. Um, he, as many of the uh, emperors were, he was uh, full of uh, kind of uh, uh, love for power and uh, for himself. Um, but he hadn't quite turned completely south. Uh, about 64 AD, uh, he murders his mother, um, which if, uh, if you, you know you've kind of gotten to the end of yourself, the end of the road when you're murdering your mother. 
uh, you have gotten really, really, really in a bad way. And, uh, and that, was, that was Nero in AD 64. Well, this is around AD 62 before Nero kind of makes that turn. But Paul is in prison in Rome awaiting trial from Nero. And he's sending a letter to a church in a city called Philippi. And this was a church where he had brought the good news of Jesus. Uh, There were two women that he preached the gospel to, shared the gospel with, that became Christians uh, there. One was Lydia, uh, who was a trader of purple. Um, And so she was probably a pretty wealthy woman who was also a God-fearing Jewish, uh, uh, a, a person who would have been... Uh, respectful of the Jewish God. She wasn't Jewish. She was Gentile. But when she heard the good news of the gospel, she became a Christian, she and her whole household. Uh, As Paul is in Philippi, there's a slave girl that's there uh, who is uh, demon-possessed, and she's fortune-telling, and she's very, very profitable for her slave owners who are peddling her spiritual gift uh, around, which is not a good spirit, but um, and, and profiting off of her. And when she meets Paul, Paul casts the demon out of her. And because they recognize, oh my gosh, uh, we're not going to have any profit from this girl anymore. They end up uh, throwing Paul and Silas in prison. Uh, they end up beating them. Um, and then the Lord miraculously allows him to escape because uh, he's a God of miracles. But in the midst of that, uh, the Philippian jail, jailer who was responsible for Paul is like, well, uh, when, when uh, the people in charge of me hear about this, I'm going to be put to death. So he was getting ready to commit suicide. Paul said, stop, we're not going to go anywhere. Let me tell you about Jesus. Uh, this Philippian jailer becomes a Christian. In fact, him and all his household become Christians. And that's the birth of the Philippian church. So a lot of wild circumstances going on uh, as Paul has uh, gone through Philippi on his missionary journey. And um, God has done great things. Paul loves this church. And he's here in prison in Rome waiting to withstand trial under Nero. He's not sure if he's going to live. He's not sure he's, if he's going to die. All he knows is that in the midst of his imprisonment, God is using his story. God is using uh, the reason for his imprisonment to tell the good news of who Jesus is to the entire imperial guard. So everyone who would have been in close proximity to Caesar, to Nero, would have been hearing about the good news of who Jesus is through this very strange prisoner that they have uh, in Paul, who is a Roman citizen and he's waiting trial because of this man named Jesus of Nazareth. And so they're hearing about the story of Jesus uh, because of this. And so Paul has just, in, in chapter one, the last passage that we, we uh, walked through together, he's just said, you know, what's crazy about this is he's updating the Philippians through this letter. He's like, what's crazy about this is that God is using all of these circumstances that I'm in, my situation, for the, for the furthering of the gospel, and I'm good with that. In fact, for me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if I'm gonna live, I'm gonna live for Jesus and I'm gonna have fruitful labor and ministry here because he's called me to be the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm gonna take the good, good news of Jesus wherever I go. And so Paul's like, to live is Christ. I'm gonna live for him. As long as I'm breathing, I'm gonna be living for Jesus uh, Paul kind of had what, what we just sang and prayed as Josh led us. If, if you're not here, I don't want to be, I don't want to be moved unless you move. I don't know about you. When I sing that, I don't know about you. I, I sing that with like, okay, God, this is my prayer. 
This is my desire. Like, I really want to live this way with that heart in mind. If you're not here, I don't want to be, I don't want to be moved unless you move. Well, Paul, that was the life that he truly lived (laughs) because he had seen Jesus face to face and Jesus had sent him out on mission. And so that was Paul's life. He's saying to live as Christ. I'm going to live for Jesus. Whatever it is that, that I do, whatever circumstance I find myself in, I am living for Jesus. But then he says, and to die is gain. Because Paul recognized that to be absent from this body is to be present with Jesus in eternity. And so Paul is saying, whichever it is, I'm okay with God's story for me because either way, I'm going to have Christ. I'm going to live for Jesus here on earth or I'm going to live with Jesus in heaven. And so Paul is saying, listen, whatever uh, circumstance I may be finding myself in, I can rejoice in that because either way. I'm going to be able to live for God or I'm going to be able to live with God. And that is good news to me. And God is able to use these circumstances as terrible as they might seem to anyone looking in on my life. I mean, he is a Roman citizen who should be able to move throughout Rome freely, but he's sitting in a prison cell waiting for Nero to hear his trial because some Jewish people in Jerusalem were going to tear him limb for limb because he was telling the good news about Jesus as the Messiah. And so Paul is saying, oddly enough, He's using my life for his glory, even though I'm in this prison cell. And so I'm writing to you to let you know that wherever you find yourself, you are to live for the glory of God as well. And what's interesting is that what Paul is doing is he's writing to a people group uh, in a city, Philippi, that was incredibly pro-Rome. See, this, this, this city, Philippi, was a place where if you had been a really great military uh, you know, a person, maybe a general in the military or someone who had uh, done well in government and you'd served the empire well, uh, Philippi was a place that you could retire, you could live tax-free. And so uh, this church is set in the midst of a very pro-Roman city. And Paul is in the midst of a prison cell because he's telling about Jesus and he's saying this gospel, this good news that Jesus is Lord. And uh, he's sitting in a Roman prison cell waiting to meet Nero. And who would any good Caesar say is Lord? Themselves, right? Uh, this is kind of a, a, a part of the, the, uh, the time frame that we're in. Uh, the, the Roman uh, imperial cult was kind of on the rise where people were really starting to worship in addition to the Roman pantheon. They were starting to worship Caesar, not just as he's our great leader, but that he's God incarnate. Uh, And that began with Caesar Augustus, and it was continuing on up until this point. And so Paul is saying, no, 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 Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. How popular of a message do you think that would be, right? So the Roman imperial guard is saying there's this curious prisoner He's a Jewish man. He's been attacked by the Jews. And then he's also a Roman citizen. And so he appealed to our justice system. But all the while, he's saying Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So this is a very curious uh, prisoner that they have uh, in Rome. And Paul is writing to a church full of people who are saying Jesus is Lord. These Philippians have recognized Jesus is Lord in a city that is loyal to who? Caesar, to Rome. 
Why? Because they have lived their lives for Rome. They have lived their lives for Caesar. And because of their faithfulness to the Roman Empire, they are now uh, enjoying the fruit of that faithful labor, living that tax-free life, uh, living the retirement life. I know a lot of you guys are here in Florida because of Walt Disney World. Um, but many, many people come to Florida for another reason. Do you know what it is? Yeah, tax-free, right? It's income taxes, right? And, and so because we don't have a state income tax, what do people do at the end of their life? They retire here in Florida. So like the villages, America's friendliest hometown, it's like Philippi is Rome's friendliest hometown. You guys get that? You guys kind of follow where I'm going here? And maybe this is a little bit of a stretch, but I say it's pretty applicable, right? <laughs> Oh man, you know, when I, when I, <laughs> so when I first kind of shared this at our winter, gar- winter garden campus, I tried to sing the jingle of the villages and it just like bombed so bad. It was like, wah, 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 like, don't try that again, Joel. Okay. So I learned my lesson. I won't sing the jingle, but, um, <laughs> uh, but, but I think it's very interesting and it's, it's really important as you approach any book of the Bible, as you approach any book of the Bible, to begin to kind of place yourself in the shoes of the, the recipients of any given letter that you're reading or uh, whatever the author was kind of intending their audience to be able to understand and hear and embrace and realize and recognize. It's important to put your, your, yourself in the shoes of those first Hearers, what would have they been thinking about when Paul was writing the words that he's writing? And it's also important to kind of recognize, okay, what's very different about these hearers, and, and how are how how am I similar? How's my life very similar to the people that the Bible was written to originally? Because the the Word of God, it's it's beautiful because it's God's word to us, to you and me, but it's also God's word to those in, in, original intended recipients. And as we begin to kind of understand that God is speaking through human authors, that it's, that it's the, the word of God, and he's using human authors like Paul to speak to a certain group of people, it can really help us understand what actually they might have been hearing in that moment when they first heard this letter read in, in the city of Philippi, in the, in the church that they were in. And it's important because as we recognize the similarities between them and us, we can recognize what we should be taking away from what we're hearing in the word of God. And what Paul is about to say here in the next passage that we're going to get into tonight is intensely appropriate and for us. Because Paul is convinced that the way that the Philippian church lives their lives in the midst of their circumstances matters greatly. And our lives lived in our circumstances matter greatly. And what Paul recognizes as he's writing to the Philippians is that he has called them through the gospel to a life that is altogether different than the life that would have been expected of them in their cultural context. And I want to ask you a question tonight as we step into our text together tonight. Is Jesus calling you to live a life that is, that is unexpected for the cultural context that you find yourself in on a daily basis? I'm going to ask that again just so it sinks in. Is Jesus calling you 
to live a life that is altogether different than what is expected of you within your cultural context. Because every culture has a context that has an expectation on the citizens of its culture. Whether you're a cast member at Walt Disney World or you're a part of a certain age demographic, whatever you may kind of assign to yourself as your most um, immediate context in your culture, whether that's just because you live here in the United States or whatever it may be, we have to recognize that our culture has certain expectations around the way that we live our lives. If we broaden it to the, to the most common denominator, here's the, it's kind of like the American dream, right? The American dream is the expectation that is placed upon Americans. That you live, you, 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 you grow up, hopefully if you grow up in a, in a home that's, that's a struggle or difficult, that you're able to overcome that struggle or difficulty through your own hard work. Maybe you get some education. Maybe you, uh, uh, um, you pursue a, a career path. Perhaps you meet somebody and you fall in love and, and you start a family of some kind. You live your life and, and after years and years and years, you build up some wealth so that you can retire comfortably and pass on some money to be then taxed and then give to, given to the next generation rinse and repeat. That's the American dream. A white picket fence, 2.3 children, a dog. For those of you who a cat is a part of your dream, I will pray for you. But, but for the, I lost all the cat lovers. They're like, all right, I'm just going to read Philippians here. <laughs> Listen to this schmuck, you know. But there is an expectation on us, a cultural expectation on us. And that was true in Philippi. And so as Paul is writing to the Philippians, he's recognizing that their lives, there's a cultural expectation on them. And he's going to call them into something more beautiful something greater, something broader, something more eternal than, than their cultural context could even fathom. And what's true for the Philippians is true for us. So let's open our Bibles. We're gonna jump into the text together tonight. Philippians chapter one is where we're at. Um, we're gonna start tonight in, in verse 27. Again, Paul has just said, hey, I'm living my life for the glory of God, whether I'm in prison or I'm free, it doesn't matter. To live as Christ, to die as gain. He said, this is the life I'm living so that when you look at my life, you have reason to glorify God because of me. And now he's gonna turn his attention to his audience. And in verse 27 of Philippians chapter one, if you have one of the Mosaic Bibles you picked up on the way in, you'll find it on page 1083. But Philippians chapter one, Paul says this. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Remember, Paul's in prison for his faith. So he's someone who can kind of, he can talk, he can speak to this. He can say, I'm living my life worthy of the gospel. And now I want you to live your life worthy of the gospel. I'm living my life not frightened by my opponents. And I want you to live your life not frightened 
by your opponents. And what Paul is assuming is that living a life worthy of the gospel is going to be a life that is countercultural to what the Philippian life should look like according to a Philippian. What the Roman life should look like according to a Roman. Paul is saying, only let your manner of life be worthy, not of Rome, not of Caesar, not of Philippi, not of America, not of the villages, not of Walt Disney World, or Universal, or wherever you may work. Paul is saying only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. One of the things that's beautiful in the original language where Paul is writing in Greek, when he says, let your manner of life, he's saying, conduct yourself. What he's hinting at is this idea of citizenship. He's hinting at the idea of living your life worthy of your citizenship. And what Paul is not talking about is Roman citizenship. What he is not talking about is American citizenship. What Paul is talking about is the citizenship that followers of Jesus have, not to any earthly kingdom at all whatsoever, but to heaven. In fact, elsewhere, Paul will write that our citizenship is not on earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. And so when Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he's saying, live according to the kingdom that you belong to. He said, don't live according to all these other kingdoms. Live according to the kingdom to which you belong. And that's going to change things. It's going to change actually everything. When you wake up in the morning and you think to yourself that I'm living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I'm not living as a citizen of the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome. And, And during this time, I mean, the Roman empire was everything. It was everything. It was huge. It's the most powerful uh, uh, empire that had ever, ever existed up until that point in history. Perhaps one of the most powerful empires to have ever existed till now. And for a Roman citizen, being Roman was everything. And for people who were not Roman citizens, they recognized that they were so far below anyone who lived in Rome that they had far less opportunity in life because to be a Roman citizen was everything. It meant that you had so many privileges, so many rights, so many opportunities that so many other people did not have. And what Paul is saying is live your life as a citizen of heaven because when you wake up to that reality, you begin to recognize that your citizenship to heaven is everything. That it means everything. One of the the, the ethics of the, the, the Roman Empire was this idea called Pax Romana, which was the peace of Rome. And what that meant is that everyone who lived under Roman rule, whether citizen or not actually, was able to benefit from and experience peace. Now that peace was achieved through conquering, ironically, But Jesus achieved our peace through his death on the cross. And we're invited to live according to that peace as citizens of his kingdom. And and like Rome had an emperor, our kingdom has a king. And his name is Jesus. 
and he rules and he reigns far differently than any ruler that we could ever fathom because every ruler, every human ruler that has ever been experienced to the degree that that ruler has the ability to affect the world that he rules, so however much power he has, is the degree of corruption, right? Right? That, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we've seen that throughout human history. But our king, King Jesus, rules and reigns over a kingdom that he's invited us to live as citizens of. And that he establishes his rule of peace between God and man and man with one another, not through conquering, but by giving his life as a ransom for many. And what Paul is saying is only let your life be a life that is lived in light of Jesus, our king and his kingdom, worthy of the good news of who he is. Paul's saying just only let your, your manner of life be worthy of that. He continues, he says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, and Paul is kind of in this space where he's like, maybe I'll get out of prison. Maybe I'll be able to visit you. Or maybe I'll die, I don't know yet. So whether I come and see you because I've been released or I'm absent from you, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now listen to this language that Paul is using as he's encouraging the Philippian church. Like, in order for you to live this life that is worthy of the gospel, here's what that's gonna require. Here's what that's going to take in order to live that life. This is what that's gonna be, be looking like. He says this, that you are standing firm in one spirit and that with one mind you're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I'm going to share a story with you, and I know this story may sound familiar, and I want to assure you this story does not come from the movie 300, because that movie is filthy, and men do not have eight packs, so those are just important things for you to know, um, but this story actually comes from the Christ-centered exposition commentary, not from the movie 300, all right. But as Paul is writing here, when he's talking about this idea of standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, it conjures up this idea of people in complete unison standing side by side and standing firm together regardless of what may be coming against it. So from the Christ-centered exposition commentary, <laughs> the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BC had an alliance of Greek city-states led by King Leonidas of Sparta. Okay, sounding, sounding familiar, right? They rallied together to battle the king of Persia and the Persian army. The battle took place at the pass of Thermopylae. The Greeks were severely outnumbered, but held the massive Persian army back for three days in one of the world's most famous last, famous last stands. A small force led by King Leonidas, including the famous 300 Spartans, blocked the path forward uh, through the path that the massive Persian army needed to pass through. What Paul is saying here is that when we, 
And remember, he's writing to a church in Philippi we know was not a very large church. Um, Even during Paul's missionary journey, it was just a few households of believers. It probably grew from there. At this point, after Paul's later journeys, we know that the church would have grown, but this is not a huge church. This isn't the church in Jerusalem with 3,000 people added to their number in the first day. Uh, This isn't the church in Rome, actually. This is the church in Philippi, uh, which really wasn't a very important city. Uh, It was not a large city. It was just one of the churches that were planted. And Paul is writing to these Philippians, and and it's just a small band of followers of Jesus in the midst of a city that would have had a very large tidal wave of love for and support for the empire that was visible around them, the Roman Empire. And it's as if Paul is saying, listen, I want to hear about you, that you are standing firm side by side, regardless of the tidal wave of the culture that's coming at you. Regardless of what is coming your direction, I want you to stand firm side by side so that you will be able to stand and live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus talks about when he says, you know, they they won't even know that you're Christians unless you love one another, right? And so this vision that Paul is laying out in front of the Philippians is that our lives, when we live them loving one another as Jesus has commanded us to do, when we live our lives loving one another well, then we are able to strive standing side by side for the same purpose with one mind in one spirit, standing firm no matter what comes against us. When we're looking to the side, to our left, to our right, we're saying, listen, I don't know if we're going to make it through this, but if we're going to die, we're going to die together because I love you and I love you. We have the same king. We're fighting for the same kingdom. We're fighting for his glory and we're going to stand against whatever cultural pressure and whatever enemy we may find ourselves fighting against. It's a recognition that we are not each other's enemy. And I'll tell you what, man, 2020, 2021, the last 18 months of our lives, As followers of Jesus, the world has been begging us to tear each other apart, to to grab each other's throats, to disagree about all sorts of things, about who should be the president, whether or not masks should be worn and when, and, and who should get the vaccine and who shouldn't, and all of these different things, right? This is like a cultural reality. We're, we're fighting uh, uh, issues of racism. We're fighting issues all around us. And there are so many ways that as followers of Jesus, we could look at each other and say, oh, you're the enemy. Oh, you're the enemy. And we could self-implode. And what Paul is saying is, no, we are not each other's enemies. Instead, to live a life uh, that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus, we got to stand side by side. We got to fight together. We have to recognize that we have a common enemy and his name is Satan. And we have a common king, and his name is Jesus. And there's a culture around us that's pushing us to try to, to try to keep us from living our lives faithfully for our king in the midst of this cultural surrounding that we're in. And that culture is not the enemy. The culture is not the enemy. They need to know Jesus. People need Jesus. You and I need Jesus. The only reason that we can stand side by side is because we heard the gospel. We believe the gospel 
And now we're living a changed life because of the gospel. And for those of you who are here and you're like, I'm not sure I'm in that camp. We're glad you're here. We want you to be among us. We love you. And we wanna walk with you on your spiritual journey, whatever that may look like. Because for those of us who have met Jesus, we know that it's a life-changing. The most life-changing thing in the world is to know your creator, to know your savior. And so I wanna, I wanna boldly and unapologetically invite anyone who's here who does not yet know Jesus before you leave these doors, have a conversation with somebody who is here, who you came with, someone wearing a blue shirt or Eddie back there. I know he's strong looking and intimidating. He used to, he used to uh, hit, hit uh, baseballs very, very far. That's what those muscles were for, okay? He's a nice dude. His wife, Renee, they, they all have a conversation with you. Listen, if you're here and you don't know Jesus yet, we want you to know Jesus. And the reality is this, for those of us who do know Jesus, If you're looking at us, hopefully you see something in the way that we love one another that begs the question, what is different about these people? And what Paul is saying is, listen, live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, that that you strive side by side and fight the same fight, the same battle together with one another for one another. Paul continues and says, look, this is a clear sign to them. When you live that way, it is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And what is Paul talking about? That this sign, it's a signpost that the empire of this world that our culture is living is an empire that is degrading. It is an empire that is decaying and it is an empire that will not last. In fact, the Roman empire did indeed implode and decay and not last. Rome used to be called the eternal city, they believed it could never fall. It's like, you know, that's, that's like the, the last thing you ever want to say. This is the city that will never fall. It's going to fall. This is the ship that will not sink. Near, far, wherever. Okay, so usually I get booed if I sink, so I'm not going to do that anymore. But anytime you think something is going to be everlasting on this planet and, and it's not God, you are in big trouble. <laughs> Because there is only one who is eternal. There is only one who is everlasting. And it's the God of the universe. His name is Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is, look, this is a clear signpost that that this world is going to be destroyed. It's decaying. But of your salvation that comes from God, the empire that we live for as followers of Jesus, it's eternal. Now, Paul says some very interesting stuff in verses 29 and 30. And I don't know about you. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying this for me. This is a verse that I have never memorized up until this point. There's a lot of verses I've never memorized, but this one's one of them. Um, in Philippians, you may have heard like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Anybody ever heard that one? Uh, Tim Tebow, you know, pasted it right here uh, before every game. You know, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And as a Florida State fan, that particularly offended me. But, because uh, Tim Tebow played, played for the Gators, we're rivals, if you're not a sports person, whatever. Uh, that, that one will, will not help you. Um, but those are the kind of verses we tend to memorize, right? For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to give you hope. Plans to prosper you, not, not harm you. Give you hope in the future, right? Those are the, the ones that we tend to memorize. The ones that we post on our Facebook slash Instagram slash Snapchat slash whatever else is cool these days. I don't know what the kids are doing. 
Um, what is it, TikTok or something? I don't know, there's probably something else that's cooler now. Um, but here's what Paul says, and I actually would encourage you to memorize it. Um, and I've, I've committed to, um, to, to put this one in the old memory bank. Verse 29, Paul says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I'm gonna read that again. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And in the American church, American Christians, we have a very thin, razor thin, maybe thin ice theology of suffering. Why? Because suffering doesn't fit into the American dream. Remember when I recounted the American dream? Did it sound familiar to all of us? See, suffering's not in there, is it? See, as Americans, we avoid suffering. As humans, we avoid suffering. It scares us. And most of us think that God exists to alleviate our suffering. But that's not true. That's not the gospel. That's not in the Bible. Let me read this again. For it has been granted to you. The word granted there is the, is the word charis, which also means grace. For it is grace to you that you should not only believe in Jesus, but also suffer for his sake. Verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now still hear, and now hear that I still have. It's an act of grace that we suffer with Christ for two reasons. And I'll give you the first. It's James chapter one. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. For it is the testing of your faith that produces perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may become, and I may become mature and complete, not lacking anything do you know why it's God's grace that we suffer for the sake of Jesus? Because he wants us to become more like Jesus. And we can't be more like Jesus if everything is always going right in our lives. Let me ask you a question. When do you feel closest to God? When do you know your need for God? Right after the promotion or after the job loss? Furlough? The second reason that it is an act of grace. <laughs> Philippians 3, Paul will say this later and we'll preach this later, but Philippians 3 verses 10 and 11, Paul says this. 
He says that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says later, as he is about ready to die, he says to Timothy, his protege, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Just standing on the promises of God. Listen, I I don't know where you're at. I don't know if life is great for you or if you're like, yeah, I know what it's like to suffer. Here's what I hope we gather from this passage tonight. What suffering does and what fighting this fight does in our lives is it makes us more like Jesus and it gives us fellowship with Jesus. And I'm gonna be honest, in like my own self, my flesh, what the Bible would say, my flesh, my own nature, my sinful nature. I don't want any of that. But isn't it true that when we come to know who Jesus truly is, that we desire to be more like him? And isn't it true that when we become more clear on how beautiful and amazing and incredible Jesus is, that we want fellowship with him? Yeah. The problem is, it is so countercultural, so countercultural for us to embrace the means by which we can become more like Jesus and have fellowship with him. And so often the means by which is the path known as suffering. So if we're not suffering in some way, because of our faith in Jesus, it might be good to ask the question, why not? Does that mean we pursue suffering and we chase suffering? No, this is not not something that should lead us towards self-loathing or self-harm or any of those kinds of things. That is not what this is talking about. What it is talking about is standing firm in the midst of a world that is gonna come at us. in a world that has fallen and broken, in a world that still feels the sting of sin until Jesus comes, returns, and makes all things new. Suffering will be a part of the story on this planet. But I would submit that if we are not suffering in some way because of our faith in Jesus, perhaps it is because we say we live for Jesus, but instead we live for the empire that surrounds us. Maybe we're not living for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords of the eternal empire that says up is down, left is right. The last are first. Those who suffer will receive reward, but instead we're living according to the culture that says there's a dream and the best way for you to pursue it is to do everything you can to get it. And suffering is not a part of that dream. 
And so tonight, I wanna encourage us to recognize that because we are in an actual battle, (laughs) because there is a real enemy, because we live in a fallen and broken world, that suffering is going to take place in our lives at some point. And the question is, are we going to be ready to meet suffering when it comes? And the only way we can meet suffering when it comes is, we rec- is when we recognize <laughs> that suffering is the way that Jesus our Lord, the path that Jesus our Lord took in this life. And if we want to follow Jesus, the suffering will be a part of the journey. I'm gonna close with this. There's a pastor named uh, Eugene Peterson. He's the author of The Message. If you've ever read, it's a paraphrase of the Bible. It's really good. But Eugene Peterson talks about, uh, in a book that he wrote called uh, As Kingfishers Catch Fire, uh, which is a conversation on the ways of God formed by the words of God. He talks about this concept called congruence, which is a geometry term, which I almost failed high school because of. Um, (laughs) I really struggled with this. So I had to read this several times, all right? But he says that congruence in geometry is the relationship that exists between two figures when one is superimposed over the other and all their angles and sides coincide as a mirror image. Eugene Peterson says, the Christian life is the lifelong practice of attending to the details of congruence between ends and means, congruence between what we do and the way we do it, congruence between what is written in scripture and are living out what is written. Congruence between a ship and its prow, between preaching and living. So what I'm doing right now, I am hoping that my life will live in congruence with what I'm doing. As you share your faith with friends and loved ones, that there should be congruence between preaching and living. Otherwise, there's hypocrisy. He says congruence between the sermon and what is lived, both in the preacher and in the congregation, The congruence of the word made flesh in Jesus with what is lived in our flesh. How can we say we love and follow Jesus who suffered and all the while do everything we can to avoid the path that he walked? So this idea of congruence is an idea that says, if Jesus, my Lord, took this path, then that's a path worth taking. And when Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. What Paul is saying is whatever it takes to know Jesus and live for his kingdom, count me in. Paul said it. I hope, I hope to God to say it for the rest of my life. And to live a life in congruence with saying it. And I hope that you will say it. And I hope that you will live a life in congruence with what you are saying. Because Jesus is the only king of the only kingdom worth living in and worth living for. I'm going to pray for us. God, I thank you so much for the book of Philippians where Paul is honest enough by the power of your Holy Spirit to invite us to live a life that is manner, that is worthy of the, uh, of the gospel, that, that 
our life would be lived in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Whatever it takes, whatever may come. And it's gonna take us loving one another. It's gonna take us striving side by side together. It's gonna take us recognizing who our enemy is and who our ally is. And and God, there is so much of this whole idea that is impossible for us in and of ourselves. So God, we ask that you would give us your grace, but that we would recognize, God, that your grace is not just for us to live our most comfortable life, but that your grace invites us into and often calls us into living for you even when it's going to cause us to suffer. And God, I thank you that you don't do that because you don't love us, but you do that because you do love us and that you want us to be more like you and to know your son, Jesus. So God, help us to live a life that is in congruence with what we say we believe. Help me to do the same. And God, I just pray that as we recognize that you are the King of Kings and that you are the Lord of Lords and that your kingdom is everlasting and worth living for, that we would recognize that there is nothing that is worth bowing our knee to the kingdoms of this world. So God, help us. We need your grace. We need your love. We need you to draw us near to yourself so that we can live for you no matter what may come. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.